Hello, Internet. This is Chase Wassenaar, a.k.a. the Red Shirt King, and welcome to another very special edition of the Esports Gambling Hour. I am so excited because BlizzCon is here. It is time, and it is time to break it down with the only person that I would ever want to break down any sort of gambling lines and Heroes of the Storm stuff right now. Walter Fedchuk. Walter, how are you doing, man? I am I am glad that we've gotten to that point in our relationship where it's no longer like he's a special like oh it's a special guest it's like no they're you know he's the only other person on the planet that would actually <laughs> do this with me. So let's do this. Well, the thing is like I haven't found the other like big gambler guy yet. I know I know a couple of people in in League of Legends. Like I'd love to talk with uh with Nilu from the Score, but he doesn't like doing podcasts. You know, most of the other writers I talk to they know a lot about it, but they don't like to talk about gambling. I love talking to him. But they don't like to talk about this part of it. I'm still learning Heroes of the Storm personalities. I'm new. I, you know, I'm newer to the scene. You know, this is why I'm going to be the host this time around because it's it's time to to let your overall knowledge shine through. And nowhere did that shine through more than watching Cloud Nine do Cloud Nine things and secure their spot into the first round of this tournament. You know, their first game against of GIA wasn't particularly impressive. But they did manage to take that three-game series against Dignitas. So my question to you, Walter, is how good are you feeling about Cloud9 after this first set of games? Well, see, here's, so here's the thing with me. I didn't watch the games live. I ended up watching them VODs. And all I saw the day of the actual tournament was that just Dunk Train was amazing. Dunk Train was amazing. Dunk Train had this amazing god-tier game. Like, oh my lord, the only reason Cloud9 got this far is because of Dunk Train. So I'm watching the games... And apparently it's the game two against Giants where he plays Lieutenant Morales, where he like goes off and has this incredible game. I didn't like see where anything that he was doing was anything incredible. He was dealing, he was doing what a support needed to do and keeping his carries up and keeping everyone live. And granted, there was definitely a difference in his uh, his Morales play than uh, the Morales play from Dignitas. He was definitely more comfortable on the champion, but on the hero, but. I didn't see anything that was just like, oh my god, Dunk Train's the best player in the world, which was what I got from Twitter the day of. Hmm. Uh, Cloud9 definitely exposed the fact that they have this kind of schizophrenic person, this kind of schizophrenic personality in terms of playing, where we've seen over the course of the North of North America, where they're in this slump where they couldn't beat Tempo Storm at all, and then all of a sudden they beat Tempo Storm once, and then they go for six months being the best team in North America, and then Tempo Storm beats them, and they're just very helter, like very kind of helter skelter in their play style, their consistency. Some games they're really good in the early game, but then when you get to late game decision making, especially back you know a couple of months ago in Tempo Storm, they had all these problems in executing these late game team fights and getting objectives. Where now in this tournament, GIA, which I think we kind of underestimated a little bit, really came out swinging and was able to get to Cloud Nine in that early game and kind of throw them off balance. But then Cloud9, you know, at the you know level seven, level eight mark, we're kind of able to force GIA to actually team fight them, actually fight over objectives, and able to get the two over them. And the Dignitas did the same thing, where Dignitas was able to get these really, really strong leads, and in game two, almost came back from being crushed by Cloud9 in the early game. Like it's just. Cloud9 is just very back and forth. In some games, they're very good in the early game, and some games, they're terrible in the early game. Some games, they have great decision-making in that kind of post 
heroic tier, like 10, 11, 12 into 13, mm -hmm. and getting later into the game, and other times they're just terrible where their decision-making is just awful. I think they got really lucky with the fact that they have a very, very easy group in terms of the overall quality of the teams. Uh, Dignitas, while they're good and they made it out of Europe, and honestly, I think they're much better than a lot of the other analysts have been giving them credit for, they still, you know, are probably not the second or, you know, they're Dignitas is probably the fourth or fifth best team at uh, the World Championship, as opposed to the other side of the bracket where Na'Vi had to contend with, you know, Team DK, who is arguably the favorite to win the tournament right now. Yeah, I'll say this. If nothing else, I'm feeling pretty justified in the way I ranked these teams. I had DK1, Na'Vi2, Cloud9, 3, and Dignitas4. And even though Na'Vi beat DK, I'm not ready to say that I was wrong on that yet. I cannot wait for that finals to come out because I want to see how DK adjusts to what we saw. Though we'll get to Na'Vi in a second. But this is, this is exactly what I meant when I was talking about Cloud9 being such a, a give-and-take team. Uh, against GIA, there were moments where, you know, in the first game they gave away uh, a little bit uh, in the late game. They had a great early game. They couldn't capitalize, but, you know, and GIA just hung around more than they needed. Same in game two. You know, I, I guess the reason I give Dunk Train so much credit is that with the way they played, you know, the, the early to mid game, if it's not for Dunk Train doing Lieutenant Morales perfectly, they lose. The rest of that team was not playing especially well. And because of him, and because he was able to sneak in that last temple fight, right, as GIA is about to pull off the comeback, that's why they're in the winner's bracket right now. Uh, so, you know, those kinds of, of moments. And, and Cloud9 was another example of that. When, when they played uh, Dignitas, <clears throat> you know, Dignitas in game one with the Abathur, with the Toxic Nest, they forced Cloud9 to fight on Dignitas' terms. That ended very poorly for Cloud9. But for everything else, you know, it was... It was a weird win in game two. You know, it was a it was a back and forth, and all it took was Bakery having one really bad Morales play yeah. for them to come back. That that medevac made a negative amount of sense, from what I can tell. And <laughs> then in Battlefield of Eternity, all they had to do was survive the early game. Dignitas won the early game. They won the early game handily. Yeah, by a considerable Handly. margin. And Cloud9 had to weather that storm, and they did enough. But do I feel confident about it? Do I, do I think they're a top-two team? No. Do I think they're better than Dignitas? Yeah, but I th I'd say, whereas before this, this series, I thought you know the, it was the top three, and then Dignitas was a solid fourth. I think right now we've got a top two, and then a third and fourth. Con considering that Cloud9 has been a team for almost since last BlizzCon. Like, this iteration of the team became Cloud9 right after BlizzCon last year, right after the kind of show-matchy uh, way that they were doing it, and the fact that Dignitas, originally known as Bob Question Mark, has only been around since July, says a lot about how good Dignitas is, and I think that if these two teams played again, Dignitas would win that series. Yeah, and the way, if they're going to play again... It's going to require some things from Dignitas we'll talk about in a little bit. But one of the things it would require is beating a Na'Vi team, which, man, did they show up. What was Na'Vi able to do so far to surprise you and to, and to come off like a team that I don't think either of us, even, even I liked it, but I didn't like them this much. What did they do to really kind of so, surprise us so much? So Na'Vi is really fitting into this world meta, into the 
this Heroes of the Storm World Championship meta in terms of the meta has shifted into a very, very heavy focus on warriors and melee fighting. Mm -hmm. uh, you see a lot of, like, Tyrael has become one of the most, like, contested picks of the entire tournament. The changes to Sanctification allowing him to move around after he activated it, it makes him really highly contested as a warrior, as, especially among uh, DK and Na'Vi. Uh, they're just relying on these really strong warrior compositions, even having to delve down into Diablo against Braveheart and against uh, the game they lost against Team DK, which Diablo has been considered trash since he was nerfed, you know, six, seven months ago. So to be able to, like, go into that and pull off what's a really, really kind of interesting, cheesy composition with the Gust Falstad, mm -hmm. uh, they did the same thing against Braveheart in their first game, where instead of using Diablo to position the character, uh, to position enemy heroes, it was the Lamb to the Slaughter from Butcher. Mm -hmm. Just really, really smart play, really using the invulnerability from the uh, Charism Divine Palm and Sanctification to really, and even Divine, uh, Divine Shield on Uther, to really put their team into winnable fights by absorbing a lot of the initial damage or initial crowd control that their enemies are firing against them. Uh, the one thing that I'm not quite sure about is if teams get smarter and just kind of ban away the Tyrael and, or, and Karazim and focus more on kite styles, especially with Jaina, which a lot of teams are first picking, does that, you know, will that in the end hurt this really heavy melee style of of Navi, I think that once teams have, you know, looked at it, seen, okay, this is what they're relying on, uh, they're gonna call, you know, they're gonna build strategies basically to force them to engage into them, uh, rather than, you know, they're basically making a death ball, and you need to force the death ball to run into you, and you know, run it into you as you're running away, so you can get damage off while staying safe. And this is the interesting thing, right? Because if anyone should have the answer to this, it should have been Team DK. Why do I say that? Well, the team that originated this kind of triple warrior comp, especially around uh, around the Tyrael there, was MVP Black. MVP Black created this. And to get to this tournament, Team DK had to outplay MVP Black. They had to find an answer to that particular composition. And sometimes that involved picking the Tyrael themselves. Sometimes it involved using the Sylvanas in a lot of really smart ways um, and using the Malfurion to a pretty huge extent. That's been a support that worked out very well for them in that particular series. But they had answers. They'd come up with a very specific way of attacking it and they pretty much abandoned that in, in their series against Na'Vi. Na'Vi's triple warrior comp has weaknesses, but the thing that it has, those weaknesses are, are hard to exploit. Sure, you can spend a whole bunch of bands on it, but then they just play a more traditional composition. Now you're making it more of a skill matchup, and those players as individuals are all still really, really good. The teams like Dignitas, I'm not sure, are going to be able to take Na'Vi on head-to-head. -head. And in the European Championship, there's a reason Na'Vi 3-0'd them. It's, you know, Team DK can find an answer. Maybe if Cloud9 looks more like the team that won North America and does a little, you know, shores up some of those give-and-take strategies, maybe they find an answer too. But Na'Vi just right now has such a good understanding of what makes that Triple Warrior great and when they don't get the Triple Warrior, 
their fallbacks, their understanding of using characters like the, uh, the Butcher and Diablo as a secondary engage tool, recognizing that they are not the first threat, because if you do that, they're too vulnerable. They extend too far. But if you use them as a second threat and let the rest of your team come in, they just, they understand this patch, I think, better than maybe any other team right now. And it's up to the rest of the teams to look over the film from last week, look at that matchup, and adjust. And the first guys that are going to be looking to do that are the guys that are coming out of Group A left. There are three teams that are still fighting for that spot. Uh, one of them will be Navi's opponent in the semifinals. And it starts with GIA versus YL. Now, you said earlier you thought GIA surprised you from what we were expecting. What did you like from GIA? What is it that gets you excited about this team? Well, in all honesty, it was just that early game, the way that they were able to kind of nip it nip at Cloud9 and kind of push them away from certain early objectives and kind of force Cloud9 to rethink their strategy. Uh, the pick onto Lieutenant Morales, as the casters were talking about it in game two, was just phenomenal. They they baited it out. They waited for the the front line to pass on Sky Temple, and then Morales showed up, and they just hopped on him immediately. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very intelligent play. Uh, if not kind of straightforward, and you should have seen it coming. That being said, I feel like as much as they impressed me with that kind of early game prowess, their late game leaves so much to be desired that you can't reliably, you can't look at them to reliably win against anyone except maybe Braveheart at this tournament. And the problem is they're playing against the one of the most aggressive early game team, teams at this tournament in Team YL. That's how YL was able to get to Dignitas, especially in that game one where Dig pulled out that Asmodan's composition. Like, it was basically screaming when you take Leoric Johanna like that, you're basically screaming, hey, we're going to go Asmodan. And YL just picked a really good composition around it. They went with a really, really aggressive warrior in ETC who is the most aggressive warrior out of all of them just because of the power slide and face melt combination, mm-hmm. the, the knockback. Yeah. So it was just really, really well played by DK and just completely forced or not DK, YL, and just completely forced Dignitas to change their strategy and forcing Dignitas to really embrace this heavy melee uh, heavy melee kind of meta that we're seeing at Worlds. They went into game two, and they still got the ETC, they got Johanna, but they didn't have any damage to back it up with just Zavala. You know, you're relying on Uther and you're relying on, on Tyrande to be supports, supporting these more bruiser style warriors as opposed to tanks, but someone has to deal damage and, you know, just a Vala isn't going to cut it. And game three was just Dignitas playing better. That yeah. game was just incredible from Dignitas, the way they were able to pull back into it. And I think YL really kind of missed the mark with having the, the Arthas and Sylvanas. I know a lot of players that I've talked to like the army of the uh, army of the dead, that gives uh, gives Arthas like all the healing around it, but on that map on on mines, you have to abuse the fact that you have the structure control with an Arthas and a Sylvanas. Like you have to push that advantage and force the enemy team to adapt to what you're doing. And they never did. They never really used the fact that they can disable all those turrets. You know, you do one of two things: you either set up with your golem and just keep pushing that golem wave while disabling all this stuff to keep it alive as long as possible. Or you let your golem solo push while they take four people to attack it, and you go to another lane. You go to the other lane, and you push down, a, you know, push down a fort while the enemy team is protecting. So I think it was really a lack of execution by YL in that game, mm-hmm. and Dignitas was just able to get out and you know get the win. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think you nail it on the head when you look at what each of these teams are, are doing well. GIA has looked good in the early game, but their mid to late game fights have been lacking. While you can kind of say the same thing with the exception of that game three, which I, I agree with you. I have no idea what they were doing. They had the Sylvanas. They had a very good uh, Gollum fight comp. They picked that map. And they played like they had no understanding of how to use it whatsoever. It's almost like they said to themselves, well, we know the West doesn't really play Haunted Shrine, so we're just going to pick that and assume Dignitas doesn't know how to play it. And uh, it turns out Dignitas knows how to play it. So that was, uh, that was a mistake on YL's part. My concern for GIA and YL to a lesser extent is that both of these teams had pretty easily predicted compositions. I mentioned before that, uh, that GIA relies so exclusively on that Anubarak for Blue Way. He doesn't play anything else. It's one of the reasons I said if you banned it, you could really throw him off his game. Uh, he picked that in each of these games, didn't really do all that much. The Vala has been huge for GIA in these games because their Jaina is not very good. They do not have anyone that can play that hero with a win rate. Uh, I think that's like 5 and 10 is the best record they could come up with for a Jaina player on that team. That's a problem. Meanwhile, you look at YL, they rely so much on that elite Torin Chieftain for some of those engages. They don't really have a lot of other great warrior threats. I didn't like the way their Johanna played in game two. I didn't like the way that, you know, they made, they didn't really make use of their Arthas very well in game three. They certainly didn't make use of their Sylvanas in game three. It, it really feels like both of these teams have one style to win. The one thing that I think helps YL, though, and this is what sets them over the edge to me, is that YL has this you know, constant level of aggression. GIA fights well early and then kind of backs off and tries to play defensively, whereas YL, they got punished in Game 2 because they were extending all the time, and there were these constant pushes, and it almost looked like they were going to win Game 2 for that reason. When you look at the matchup between these two teams, do you think that that YL aggression helps or hurts them in the series? Uh, I think it helps them because if they screw up their aggression, if they screw up that aggression and GIA gets out to a little bit of a lead, GIA didn't really show that they knew what to do when they got to a lead, uh, in particular allowing Cloud9 to really take control of games once you hit that 7-8 to eight level mark. Uh, I think YL has the potential to, even if they fall a little bit behind in early game in the, those early rotations, give up a couple of kills, I'm pretty positive that they can just steamroll G, uh, GIA later on in the in the game, especially once you hit those first heroic tier, uh, talent tiers. So I'd love to say G, GIA, even though they impressed me, that they could stand a chance, but I don't see it. And the gambling lines are really pushing that this is a while, uh, a while victory, but not pushing a sweep, which I find really interesting. Well, I'm glad you uh, you looked it up. I was going to see if you wanted to guess, but I guess somebody just had to get ahead of the game. Uh, it is minus 238 for YL, which I think is fair. I think they win this series uh, more often than not. The, the minus one and a half handicap is fascinating. That's plus 200 right now. And I guess the ideology behind that is that this YL team is so aggressive and they like pushing so much that they are likely to put themselves in a bad situation at least one time throughout this series, which I don't think is completely unreasonable. I think it is 
You would not be crazy for uh, assuming that at some point YL is going to overextend and cost themselves and a team like GIA can take advantage of it. That said, you know, this is the esports gambling hour. That's the, that's the line I have to recommend. I think it's way more likely that we see Team YL win 2-0 than we are to see any other particular result. Though, if you do think it's going to be the 2-1, I will say the even odds for, uh, for the over two and a half maps is also pretty enticing. I would not be uh, opposed to anyone who went that way uh, if you're so inclined. But regardless of, of these teams, you know, both of which I think we accept are flawed with some, you know, some nice points to them. But now they're going up against Dignitas, which is a team that maybe struggled out of the gate with the way that they handled the YL series. I think the Asmodan, we both agree, was incredibly greedy. But we saw a lot of things from them in that Cloud9 series that I think are, are worth touching on. Did you come away feeling better or worse about Dignitas at the end of, at the end of Days 1 action? Oh, m- much better. Much, much better. In fact, if they had to play, like I said earlier, if they had to play Cloud9 again in the, you know, in the finals, I would pick Dignitas over Cloud9 every single time. I don't think either team from Group A, Dignitas or Cloud9, are going to make it to the finals. I think the, the Group B teams are just stronger across the board. It comes down to Dignitas is a relatively new team. They have very, very little experience compared to a team like Cloud9 or Temple Storm. So the fact that they were able to improve so much over a few hours and take Cloud9, which goes to gamers ranks as, you know, the number one team in the world. A lot of people coming into this were like, oh, they might be the number one team in the world, except maybe MVP Black. You know, silly things like that. They're a really strong team. And the game, the fact that they played two, three game series, two, you know, full three game series against YL and Cloud9, I think if allowed them to grow up, have made them a lot more confident in what they're able to do. And if not for just a couple of small missteps in that Cloud9 series, they'd be the ones that are already in the semifinals as, you know, instead of Cloud9. Mm-hmm. So while I think that there are some ex- things that you can exploit in terms of that inexperience when it comes to shot calling and the rotational play, I think that they proved that they can match up against Wild's aggression and use it against them to get an early game lead and transition that later on to controlling all the objectives on the map. No, I absolutely agree. I think they did very well with those kinds of, of, of fights. I think that they did very well with zone of control, especially in that game one against Cloud9, which is the series that I found far more impressive as a general rule. Because as you said, that's a series that they should win more often than not. I, I will say this. I am a little bit worried about what happens to Bakery when he's not on the kerosene. Cloud9 adjusted and banded in both games two and three in the second series of bands. And his backup plans just didn't synergize as well with the rest of the team. They really have this reliance on these perfect divine palm executions, which, to be fair, they can get away with because Bakery is the best kerosene in the world right now. But as teams are adjusting and making that no longer available to them, it really does change the way that they can approach some of this stuff. And I, I think that they need to find a better backup support pick than the Lieutenant Morales, which, you know, again, that, that medevac play, what, what a weird loss is actually how I wrote it down in my notes. This was, you know, they had the position to win and they just didn't do it. And game three is, it's another example of they needed something that was, going to give them some pressure as the game went on and instead they went all in on this early game the same way they did in their loss to to you know 
you know, the same idea as their loss in game one to YL, where they go all in on one particular win condition. And when it doesn't work, they get themselves in trouble. But I think you're right. I think they're going to learn from that. I think they're going to adjust to that quite well. We both agree that YL is going to make it out of there. What do you think the score is going to be in a Dignitas versus YL game? Uh, two on Dignitas. I, I don't think they sweep it because I think they get caught off guard in one of the games. Uh, and YL is very good at snowballing an early advantage. But I think overall it's just going to be a 2-1 and Dignitas is going to make it through and they'll be facing Navi. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, how do you feel about that series, by the way? Because we're not going to have time to talk between when these games end and the next time. So when you're looking at Dignitas versus Navi, what does Dignitas have to do to change the way that this series has traditionally gone to this point? Uh, familiarity breeds contempt. I think Dignitas needs to, uh, for anyone to beat Navi, I think they need to figure out how to deal with the Triple Warrior comp or force Navi to go off of it through bans. Uh, and, and force them to, you know, play really kind of off-meta warriors, I suppose. Maybe force them onto an ETC. Uh, but there's just so many warriors that are popular right now. The Leoric, the Arthas, the Johanna, the, the Tyrael, the Nubarak. The... Sonya got so many bands yeah. drawn. Yeah, the Sonya, which, uh, you know, Tyrael and Sonya are definitely Navi, care, Navi heroes. Mm-hmm. They definitely fit with them. They have the players that play them very well and very aggressive. So you have to figure out how you play against that. And if teams are just going to... I think the, the, the Karazim Divine Palm with the Terial Sanctification is probably your best chance at beating that. Mm-hmm. But getting both of those char- both of those characters, you're going to have to, if you're on red side, make those your first two picks and hope that you can fill in with, with some decent damage dealers in your, your uh, second and third rotation. So I would still say Navi's the favorite, but if game one comes out and Dignitas is able to show that they know how to, that they figured out a strategy against this triple warrior or, or even four melee damaged uh, characters, I think they'll stand a chance. Uh, but I would say it's probably a 3-1 in favor of Navi. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you just said there. I, by the way, I'm totally in favor of the, uh, of the Tyrael Karazim first side picks for... Uh, for Dignitas. I think that'd be really smart. Honestly, I, it's not like someone's going to pick three damage dealers. You're going to get the Kael'thas or the Vala or some other, you know, like a Kerrigan we've seen a little bit. You know, you're going to get somebody that can do damage on your team. Getting the Karazim and the Tyrael locked in early is just going to do so much for the rest of your composition. Once the, I feel like it, it's it's kind of a different situation than in League of Legends. You know, when you see in League of Legends someone picks a role, it's in your best interest to pick that same role so that you're not giving away any new information. You get the guaranteed counter pick and you're not allowing them to counter what you're up to. I don't know what the counter to Karazim Tyrael is. We haven't seen Tyrael lose this tournament so far. He is six and oh having gone sanctification in all six of those games. I would make Navi prove it. Uh, and if Navi can, you know, congratulations to them. I'm sure they understand the, the benefits of that composition enough that you'd think they have an answer. And maybe the answer is, you know, first banning the Karazim. I don't know. But it's, it's going to be very interesting. I think that, that matchup, as a general rule, is going to be one where innovation seals the day. Now we go, go on to Group B. And Group B is a very different kind of story right now. You're looking at Tempo Storm 
a team that had some inner turmoil heading into this, but has actually performed better than I think either you or I expected with that win over DK. And on the other hand, you have Braveheart, who are going out of their way to make me feel good about the fact that I had no faith in Braveheart. Where do you see this matchup going? Is there anything Braveheart can kind of do to to fix some of the issues that we saw in week one? Or is this a lost cause by you know the nature of the situation they were thrown into? I, I think it's probably a lost cause just because of the nature of the situation. Granted, now they've gotten another week to practice and prepare together. Uh, Tempo Storm has really shown over the course of the last three months or so that Luna can only really play Zeratul. Mm-hmm. That he's not very good on the other characters, and just that the meta that they're good at, this triple ranged meta, is not strong right now when you have to go against three da- you know, three melee warriors and supports and potentially a melee assassin thrown into it. It, it just doesn't it doesn't help when you're playing one warrior compositions that are trying to peel three warriors or three melee damage dealers. Mm-hmm. So the thing with Temple Storm is that they can use this as a learning experience. They can learn this as in either way, uh, either as a way to fine tune their picks and bands to make sure that if they are going to run on this triple warrior or this triple backline composition, that they make sure they get the Muradin, mm-hmm. which is the more important warrior for them to get, or get them some practice in adapting to doing something else. Maybe playing this triple warrior composition. Maybe doing a double warrior composition where instead of Zuna playing Zeratul, he's playing something like a, a Johanna or Leoric. It's just, Tempo's not in the meta right now. But I don't think Braveheart is good enough talent-wise and team play-wise to beat a team that's been together for as long as Tempo Storm has been together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I would say talent-wise, I don't think that's their problem. I think, if anything, we're learning that all these Nexus Cups that have been going back and forth between China and Korea have made both regions better. You know, Braveheart in Game 1 against Na'Vi had a better you know, early game than I expected. The Sylvanas worked well. The Muradin worked well. I felt like the Jaina got a couple really nice, uh, nice plays in that early to mid game. But when it came to team fighting, they just didn't have it. And honestly, I don't know how you could expect them to. They aren't a team. They haven't played in two months because both of these teams, both Braveheart and Edward Gaming, which is merged together into this beast that is now being considered Braveheart for the purposes of this tournament, it's been forever, and they it's a shame. It's just a shame because I think that both of these teams at their peak would have been far more interesting to watch. But Tempo Storm is, is more than good enough here. I think their their raw skill, what they're able to bring, what what they've shown in these matchups, the the Zeratul being what it is, uh, the Uther doing its thing for them. I think that they have the talent necessary to take this on. What do you think the score is going to be? Because Unicorn is pretty confident in what the score is going to be, but I'm curious to see where you go with this. I think it's a 2-0 because I think that Temple Storm, even despite the internal struggles and their struggles of being out of meta, are just the better team overall. On paper, statistically, are better than this cobbled-together Braveheart roster. Mm-hmm. It might not be a 2-0 if Braveheart can figure out a way to kind of force Tempo to play something they're not comfortable with or have adapted to play against kind of a triple range composition. But I think Tempo Storm is safely into a rematch against Team DK in, in the second elimination game of Group B. Yeah, that's fair. By the way, minus 111 if you like Tempo Storm to win that 2-0. That might be my favorite bet 
of this entire uh, Heroes of the Storm weekend. That's incredible. I mean, the, the odds of Braveheart winning a game when they're a team that literally has never been a team and has now kind of just been thrown together at the last second, I would be very, very surprised if they beat a team that has been around as long as Tempo Storm has, that have played together as long as they have. I just feel like Tempo Storm's objectives are going to be there. And, and that would lead us to a rematch between Team DK and Tempo Storm. Now, DK was not very shy in their interviews about how they believed that all the best talent was back in Korea, that they'd already basically won this tournament because they were Koreans and there wasn't really any international threat that they were concerned about. And then Navi pulled a full MVP black on him and showed him that maybe that wasn't entirely true. Do you think that that overconfidence is something that we're going to see continue through to this series? Or do you think that DK has kind of learned their lesson and is going to take care of business the second time around? Oh, absolutely. DK, DK learned very... Uh, they learned a lot of stuff about Tempo in that first matchup. Mm-hmm. One, Tempo is refusing to play what the actual world meta is right now. That probably will change. I don't think that Zoya is going to allow this team to be so stubborn that they refuse to actually adapt. They will not win this series if they play a triple range. They will not. They will not win a game. They will not win two games. They will not be even close to winning a game if they play triple range because it is not good right now. You don't have the opportunity to pick the warriors that you, the warrior that you need to protect that composition. Everyone sees it coming from a mile away. The second thing is that Zuna, I, I'm a League of Legends guy first and foremost, so I come from watching him just absolutely fail in. League of, in the League of Legends community with a very small champion pool, not very good at team fighting, not very good positional awareness, not very good decision making. And he's doing the same thing in Tempo Storm, which was supposed to be kind of a renaissance for him, especially once he got picked up by, by Tempo. He played very well with them back into the day where you could get Zeratul and where he didn't need to make plays, where he could be very safe. The problem here is that they're putting him on the playmaking champions, not only in Zeratul, but in game one, he played Kalthos. Of the DK series? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, not Kelsas. He played Vala, and Vala, you have to have very good like kind of positioning. You have to be able to micro around. And coming from someone who played 80 carry in the professional League of Legends scene, not being able to do that in Heroes of the Storm, which is probably easier but exposes a major flaw he has, it's it's kind of rough. It's rough to watch watch him play, and he's been a very, very obvious weakness in this team for probably three months now so i don't think dk is going to get caught off by the zeratul again as they showed in game three of that uh game three of that series they might let it through just because they think they can beat it and they're koreans they want to be super super egotistical and be like yep we can beat you on your best characters go to town uh it's going to require soldier to play a lot better on the less tanky warriors such as leoric such as johanna and at the end of the day, I think T- Team DK is a much more talented team as a team. They rotate around the map very well. There are very few chances of catching one or two people out of position, and they are in their meta. They are very happy with the current meta, and they're going to play it against you. Yeah, no, I think Team DK is really, really, really good. I had them as my favorites in this tournament for a reason. And even though they didn't play quite as well as they probably should have, 
I'm no less convinced of that. I mean, let's, let's be real here. If it's not for a perfect Tyrael sanctification by Alex the Pro-G in that haunted mind game in game three of their series, Team DK is, is through. They had the Golem on the core. This was, this was so clearly pushed in. They had such a big lead. You never see comebacks like that. And all it took was one perfect ult. And the question is, does Tempo Storm have a guy like Alex the Pro-G who can make that insane over-the-top play no one sees coming and pulls off a comeback like that? And the answer is no. It, it would be Arthalon, but the problem is he's not on characters that allow him to do that. He's playing mm-hmm. Sylvanas. He's playing uh, Jaina. Like, Jaina is a very good character. She's very strong. Kael'thas is a very strong character in and of itself. But you're really kind of handicapping your your playmaker on that team. I think he played Sylvanas all three games, actually. Yeah, they had KO on the Jaina or the, or the Kael'thas. So you're putting him on Sylvanas, which Sylvanas is a, is a pusher. That's all she's going to do. She's going to disable towers and try and shove through everything as you know, try and shove through the lanes as much as possible. But there's very limited playmaking potential you can get. Uh, DK should have won that first series in two games, but they got caught out of position on the Abathur quite a bit. He got sniped by Zuna, by Arthalon that were just kind of solo pushing. And I understand that afterwards they said that the Chen was, they were exploring something with, you know, trying to tr- figure out something, trying to learn something about a character and how it fits into the current meta. But if they had just gone standard meta and not played Chen and not played Abathur, they would have swept tempo in two games. Yeah. You know, it's that simple. And honestly, even that Abathur, like I've never seen Abathur, uh, Sniper play that Abathur as risky as he did. I've never seen Nobles overextend on Illidan as often as he did. It really did feel like they just had no respect for what Tempo Storm can do. And they're not going to make that mistake again. That's not something that I think DK is now in that mindset. And we've seen Korean teams get here before in League of Legends and StarCraft and, and other games like that. You do when you piss off the Korean teams, it doesn't end well. <laughs> There's just very, very few examples where you look at it and say, "Oh yes, I'm quite glad that I made the Korean team angry." They're not going to then come back with a vengeance out to prove that anyone who now pointed at their hubris earlier was absolutely right. I think they're going to come off and try to get the two zero here, and I think in the same way, DK is going to try to three zero Cloud Nine. I they are so angry right now and so ready to prove themselves. What does Cloud9 have to do to make sure that that doesn't happen? Cloud9 needs to use DK's hubris against them. They have to realize that uh, they're going to come out guns blazing. They're going to come out trying to pick people off. And you kind of have to play like you did that third game against uh, Dignitas. Mm -hmm. Sit back, build a late game kind of fighting composition that you're really good with. Uh, Make sure you play smart. You kite around. Make sure your your guys are on good characters. Uh, We really could see like an Abathur Illidan composition come out of Cloud9 if it sets up right. They have arguably the best Illidan player in the world and mm-hmm. uh, fan. So that being said, I don't think it's a 3-0, but I think DK takes it 3-1. And I like to hedge myself by saying that, oh yeah, there are probably would be one loss. But to me, this is probably a closer series than the Navi Dignitas series. You think- Even though I hyped up Dignitas as much. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem, right? Is that we've seen in very recent memory Dignitas play Navi in a best of five. That was uh, at the beginning of October. It was 
right before the Morales patch hit. But even so, I mean, Navi just crushed him. Yeah. And, and it was not a particularly close series. The familiarity there, you know, it's something that I think benefits Navi just as much as it benefits Dignitas. And I just, I don't know what Dignitas's answer is. They've had a lot of, you know, Dignitas hasn't cleanly beaten anybody. They haven't shown an answer to some of this early game stuff. And Navi is so good at picking their fights in the mid to late game. I agree with you. I think that both of these semifinal series are going to be large victories. I think Cloud9 has the potential to take a game if they're able to minimize some of the, the damages. My only concern with them is that they are so, you know, give and take. If you give DK too much, they're just not going to let you take anything else. Uh, the, you got you to gotta take early and hope that you hold on enough, which I think they could do once. I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's going to be a 3-0 for Navi, a 3-1 for, for Team DK. I would not be surprised if it's a 3. I would be more surprised by a 3-1 for Dignitas than I would be by a 3-0 for DK, though. I think DK might be that good. Mm-hmm. But that brings us to the finals, a best of seven that we are saying is going to be Navi versus DK a rematch of the best series of the tournament so far. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go so far as to say. Uh-huh. And I think both these teams will obviously have learned a lot about each other. I'm sure they've both taken a lot of time for some film. Navi gets to spend all of the first day uh, just watching DK and, and getting as much uh, as they can learn from these matchups. Who do you think has the edge in the rematch? I think DK has the edge and it's unusual for me to say that because i would love navi to win this but i think dk learned enough in that navi game and european and north american teams have not played best of sevens that's not typically how we end our tournaments they're usually uh best of fives so dk having that experience being in that best of seven knowing that they'll be have a couple games if they get out to a you know really quick 3-0 lead They'll try stuff. They'll make sure that whatever they do against Navi makes sense. Uh, and they have more cushion. They're more used to this, and they're going to have more, a lot more cushion to deal with Navi. I think DK would come out and win game one and probably game two. I think if Navi wants a chance to win this series, they have to take one of the first two games. They can't let DK get up to a two or three game advantage, or else they're probably just going to tilt off the fit. You know, they're probably going to tilt after they lose the first couple of games. And looking up at that advantage, looking up at that much of a deficit, it's really hard to just say, okay, let's just focus on this game because you know, if I don't win this game, you know, they win the championship. If I don't win this game, they go up three zero and we have, you know, we have to win four in a row. And it's really, really hard against top, you know, the best teams to win that many games in a row when you're behind. Mm-hmm. So Navi, I think they've proven that they can beat DK. They've proven that they have the strategy, they have the teamwork, they have the 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 chutzpah to come from behind and beat DK. But I just think that the Koreans have learned enough throughout the course of this tournament that they're going to be the best prepared team going into the grand finals. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be close. I have DK winning this 4-2, for those of you who are curious. I think Navi is going to get a couple games. I think the problem is... You know, you have to look at your win conditions, right? And what is what is Navi's win condition? Well, so far, the only win condition that they've been able to pull off, off of DK, is this Tyrael comp. It's Tyrael and either, you know, using it with the, 
you know, the Joanna, Leoric, and the, the Uther for all of these kinds of, you know, the divine shield sanctification combos, or using Brightwing and, and taking advantage of those opportunities in a Tyrael comp. I don't think DK is going to let that happen again. And if they do let those, you know, that Tyrael pick go through consistently, it will be, be because they found an answer to it. And I know they can find an answer to it because they did when they beat MVP Black in the best of seven that we saw. It re and I think you made a really very good point. You know, it's the same point we make about League of Legends all the time where when teams have more experience playing these extended series, that matters. We've only seen Na'Vi in a couple best of fives in their career. A lot of these series were best of threes. Most of their series they've played are best of threes. Meanwhile, DK's been playing tons of best of fives, and they've played a few best of sevens, both in this tournament and some Nexus Cups. That matters. It just, it, it puts you in this mindset where you really understand how these things can go back and forth. And then you take into account that most of these guys on, on DK are former StarCraft guys. So they've been in tons of best of sevens. They've been surrounded by the, the eSports scene and the high intensity that is the StarCraft II eSports scene. I mean, if you can stand it there, you can handle it anywhere, honestly. Yeah. And these are guys that had success in that scene. So I have no reason to believe that they're not going to continue that trend. Uh, Walter, I, I guess before we close out, there is one other thing I wanted to ask you. Because as people are going to find out by the time this is posted, you and I have both written articles this week for Unicorn. You are, are posting an article uh, about Heroes of the Storm, right? Could you want to you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so it's uh, Heroes of the Storm. Unfortunately, is not very statistics driven. There's not a lot of stats that you can get from the game. You can look at pick and ban phases. You can look at tendencies and stuff like that. But it's a lot more, in my opinion, narrative driven. And you can learn a lot from just mindsets of where teams are and uh, kind of draw comparisons to other things. I don't want to... Well, I guess I can spoil it. So I had a lot of fun writing the article because <laughs> it's very uh, it's very like wonky. Mm. And by comparing it to a musical, taking esports and comparing it to Oklahoma, it's kind of bizarre. And I really hope people enjoyed the article. Uh, it's not as detail and numbers driven as your article on StarCraft, but you have a lot more to work with. So I hope people really like the article. I had a lot of fun writing it. I really want to do more articles kind of in that style. It's a very, if you play fantasy football at all and you read articles on ESPN, it's very Matthew Barry driven where he uses uh, excerpts from his life or, or other things that he kind of notices and weaves it into the tale that he's talking about uh, you know, what players he loves that week and what players he hates that week. So hope you guys really enjoyed the article. Give me some feedback on it. Let me know what you think. And I hope it's just, I hope you learned something from it, especially that I think that that, that uh, plus 200 on the Team YL uh, sweep is just absolutely ridiculous. So go make some unicorns. It absolutely is ridiculous, first of all. And second of all, uh, I've read the article and it's very good. And you guys should definitely go check that out. Um, it's, it's, really a different way of looking at it than I. I never would have jumped to Oklahoma. I'm a big musical guy. <laughs> that would not have been the first musical I picked. But you explain it very well, and it's definitely a lot of fun. It, it reminds me both of the Matthew Berry stuff and then some of those, you know, Bill Simmons, you know, movie quotes as awards kind of thing. You know, whenever you can tie that stuff into anything in the pop culture, it's a lot of fun. I went for a much more 
statistical breakdown, not, not fully statistical breakdown. I will say that a lot of it comes from just an understanding of gambling rules and the laws that we should be taking into consideration when we make predictions. I came up with eight different rules that you should be keeping in mind on whether you're predicting or betting on any of these games on, on Unicorn, which I totally recommend because it's a ton of fun at the very least. And God, there's some value. Somehow, I, I, I don't want to spoil too much of the article here because I want you guys to, to go read it because, you know, obviously I think uh, I put a lot of work into it and it is a, a mammoth of an article. I went, uh, I went a little bit overboard, but I think in all the right ways. But there is one series in which the guy who I think is the clear favorite is currently the underdog on Unicorn. And I'm gonna, I gave you a whole bunch of reasons as to why that's the case. And you can all thank me for the Unicorns on Saturday afterwards. So, uh, hopefully you guys enjoy that. Hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you should totally go subscribe to us on iTunes. We are the eSports Gambling Hour right now. Uh, I don't think that's going to be our permanent name. We're, we are going back and forth on what our future name is going to be. But for now, you can go to search eSports Gambling Hour. You could subscribe. You could leave us a review. Those things make us very happy on the inside. And you'll get all of our stuff directly onto your iPod, which is pretty awesome. I mean, that's, that's how I listen to all my podcasts. And we like that we can make it easier for you guys. Those of you who prefer to listen through it directly through the internet, soundcloud.com slash eSports Gambling Hour is still totally a thing. And you should definitely go uh, listen to it. You'll get those immediately when they come. Come up. We're also going to be posting this on Unicorn, unicorn.com slash community. That's where you're going to be able to find Walter's article on Heroes of the Storm, my article on StarCraft 2, and this podcast with a little bit of a, a preview write-up and everything else. I like to have some sort of thematic tie-in about everything we just discussed. So uh, those are always a lot of fun. And you should just check out Unicorn because it's a really fun site. And there are tons of fun little uh, fun little bets and some some interesting uh, exotic bets, especially in StarCraft, which is where I've been focusing most of my time over the last few days. Uh, I think there's a ton of fun to be had. And until next time... Oh, actually, hold on, I almost forgot social media. Roger, <laughs> where do they follow you on Twitter? You guys can find me at, at C80s underscore LOL, at C-E-A-D-E-S underscore LOL. Uh, like I said, I really hope to get some good feedback about the articles. And uh, I want to start talking some Heroes of the Storm now that League of Legends is kind of done. I'm going to dedicate this weekend to being full-on Heroes of the Storm and full-on Blizzard StarCraft and mm -hmm. maybe watch some Hearthstone, even though it's kind of boring to me. But uh, we'll see what happens, and I'd love to talk with you guys. Yeah, and I am at Redshirt King. I will also be uh, watching Heroes of the Storm. I th I'm, I might, I'm going to try to watch as much StarCraft as I can. I might end up having to watch via some VODs because there is some overlap, and I'm always going to lean the mobile way because that's just kind of... What, where my heart has always lied in these kinds of things. But don't worry, I will be watching all the StarCraft. And at the very least, if you guys want like a delayed live tweet, I might do that on Sunday for you guys. And if nothing else, uh, you're welcome for doing an entire podcast without using the word double lift once in this entire thing. <laughs> you know, we, it was really hard, but we did our best and we managed to do, get our way through. So until next time, goodbye, Internet. <laughs>